This is They Create Worlds, episode 184, A Very Naughty Dog, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. I had a travesty happen over the last week. I had five cats traumatized by this animal that made lots of barking sounds. Really, I think it was naughty. Mm. A very, very naughty dog. But thankfully, Alex was able to research about this naughty dog so that we can better understand how to prevent its trauma to cats. That's right. These days, naughty dogs don't traumatize cats. They traumatize people. So, so many people, especially the millions that just turned into the hit HBO series The Last of Us over the last few weeks at the time of this recording. Even at the time of this recording has concluded, but just happened. Which is, of course, only the latest and perhaps most celebrated example of a video game coming from the subject of this and our next episode, the highly highly influential, celebrated, and revered Sony first-party development studio, Naughty Dog. Wait a second. You're telling me you actually know that this is going to be a two-parter until the end of the episode? Sometimes I plan these things out in advance. And sometimes I plan these things out in advance and they become three- or four-part episodes. No, this one will be a two-part episode. We can say that pretty safely just based on what's out there. We're going to take them through the Crash Bandicoot years and up to their acquisition by Sony this time around. And the next time around, we'll get a little crazily modern for you and I, Jeffrey, and at least give some kind of overview on the PS2, PS3, PS4, PS5 era with the Jack and Daxter series, the Uncharted series, and as previously teased, The Last of Us. I know we've talked about Crash Bandicoot before, somewhere in one of these episodes. There's 184 of them, so I don't know which one it is anymore. I actually have to look it up. We did an episode on platformers, Jeffrey. I can save you the lookup time. We did an episode on the history of platformers. May have been two episodes. We often do two-parters. Don't worry about it. We talked about Crash Bandicoot very much in that specific context of the evolution of platform games because it was quite a moment there. However, we did not go super in-depth on it, and we certainly didn't go in-depth on the developer behind it, so this is one of those rare episodes anymore at They Create Worlds where everything intersects after you've done nearly 200 episodes. This will be almost entirely uh, new material within the context of our show. Obviously, it's pulling together material that is out there in other forms around the interwebs and elsewhere. I haven't done any specific interviews with Naughty Dog people, but as always, we try to bring together a multitude of sources that have covered a little bit here, a little bit there to form a bigger picture and also place it in the larger context of the video game industry. So, Naughty Dog, if I recall correctly, they became one with us in our great knowledge somewhere within the PlayStation era. That's when they became noteworthy. But Naughty Dog is actually a quite old developer going all the way back to the 1980s, Mr. Jeffrey. So you're saying somewhere downstairs I might actually have a wonderful Nintendo cartridge made by Naughty Dog. No, they never made Nintendo games, so you don't have one of those. I don't think you have any Naughty Dog in your collection, but they are a developer that goes way back because the founders of the company were and are incredible prodigies. 
they began creating video games even before they were teenagers. That's impressive. Absolutely. The founders of Naughty Dog are two individuals by the name of Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin, who were Jewish, this is important, and grew up in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. Both of them discovered computers when they were very, very young. Andy Gavin started messing around with programming computers when he was 10 years old. Microcomputers, Apple II. Truly, truly a programming genius, a programming god. I mean, this is one of the finest technical minds in the history of the video game industry, without a doubt. Jason Rubin started fooling around on his Apple II at around the same time. I don't know if he was 10, but certainly somewhere 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that time period, he started as well. Rubin is not as accomplished a programmer as Andy Gavin is, but he's a very good artist, a much better artist than Andy Gavin is. And he is also very, very personable. Not that Andy Gavin is, like, impersonable, but Jason Rubin is the kind of guy that is good at being the face, good at being the front of the house, in addition to his artistic skills and some amount of relatively small, in the grand scheme of life, programming ability. So they were both working independently on just little hobbyist projects. I mean, obviously, at 10 years old, they're not trying to be a company. They're both doing their own thing. And then, because they are Jewish, at the age of 13, they become men. Officially, legally, men through their bar mitzvah ceremony. So, of course, since this is an incredibly uh, important and big deal in the life of a young Jewish man, this is something that they prep for for a good deal of time before the actual event. I mean, it's a big moment. I'm not trying to be jokey about it or downplay. It's a big moment. For the year before your bar mitzvah, you start attending what's called Hebrew school on the weekends to learn all that you need to know about this. I'm not Jewish. I can't go into super detail about this. But yeah, you go to Hebrew school. So it just so happens that Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin, being the same age and living in relatively the same area, were attending the same Hebrew school in 1982, 12 years old. They ended up getting to know each other. They ended up realizing that they both loved programming. They both discovered that it was far more fun to sit in the back of the class and talk about programming than it was to pay attention in Hebrew school. So that's what they did. That's what they started doing every Sunday, the two of them and two other students in the class that were also interested in this kind of thing. They mostly just hung out in the back and half paid attention and started talking about computer games. Three of them, Ruben and Gavin and another uh, one named uh, Mike Goyet, decided, keeping on from this, you know, obviously it's a couple years later, uh, you know, they're men now, they've been bar mitzvahed. In 1984, these three individuals, Ruben Gavin and Mike Goyet, decide to establish a software company and actually make a go at this at the age of 14. They called it Jam Software for Jason, Andy, Mike. It was a capital J, capital A, capital M, because it stood for their three names. That right there, it's, it's not called it yet, but that right there is the beginning of Naughty Dog. That's when the company was founded. So even though when we think about Naughty Dog, we think PlayStation, we think Crash Bandicoot, we think late 90s, it was founded as Jam Software all the way back in 1984. Somewhere in there, I expect a story about how we got from Jam Software to Naughty Dog. Uh, you know, 
I don't think there's a huge amount of story, but we'll get there. We'll get there. It very quickly became apparent that Mike wasn't doing much, and Mike didn't seem very interested in doing much. And so after not too long a period, Mike is kicked out of the company. So it is just our two protagonists here, Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin, that are now in the company. They kept the name Jam Software, but they reworked the acronym to stand for Jason and Andy's Magic, because it's just the two of them now. These two, you know, they're teenagers. They're entirely self-taught. This is the very early days. Microcomputers are just coming in. It's not like they're having uh, computer classes at school. I mean, my God, we've talked about this before, but even in the 90s, you know what computer classes in junior high school were like, don't you, Jeffrey? Yay, I make the turtle make a pretty square. Woo. Oh, logo. (laughs) Some schools no doubt had better computer education than others. Ours was even though a very fine, in all seriousness, junior high school, this is one area where they were definitely lagging behind. So in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, when this was all still new, you're not learning about this in school. There's not a lot of books out there, because most of the books that are out there, even at this time, are still focused on that mini-computer world, that mainframe world. They're not focused on doing the stuff in the home. They're reading the magazines, you know, they're reading Byte magazine, especially, which was a particularly hardware-focused computer magazine back in the day, as opposed to software. They're discovering user groups, talking to older, you know, much older programmers that have kind of gotten involved in this on a hobbyist perspective. Of course, they're doing their own experimentation, but they're really just learning as they go. There's nothing very formal going on in their education, but they're very talented, particularly Andy Gavin is a very, very talented programmer, and they're just kind of figuring it out. You know, they're thinking about what they want to do. They're poking around at a couple of different projects. They decided that their first project would be basically a complete ripoff, not even inspired by, but a complete ripoff of the relatively new Nintendo arcade game Punch-Out. The arcade version, not Mike Tyson's or Punch-Out. This is 1984, Jeffrey. There is no Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. There's no Nintendo Entertainment System. There's a Nintendo Family Computer, but there is no Nintendo Entertainment System. There is no Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. We're going way back in the day here. At this point, the arcade game Punch-Out has just been recently released in uh, North American arcades by Nintendo. They absolutely fell in love with it, and they decided that they would make a computer game port of Punch-Out, not licensed, not going to Nintendo and being like, we'd love to work with you, because uh, Nintendo would have said, go away, kid, you bother me, if they had tried that. Nope, they started going to the arcade, they started playing for hours and hours and just recording footage so that they could get all the animations, all the gameplay, all the characters. They weren't even making up their own characters. These are kids. One of the first things they're trying to do. They're not even trying to, like, hide what they're doing. It is Punch-Out, recreated on a computer platform. Even the more ironic thing about this, which makes it even funnier, is that Jason Rubin's father was an intellectual property lawyer. You know, they're working on this at their houses. I mean, they're kids. They don't have an office. They're working in their homes, whatever else going down to the basement. So, I mean, you know, their parents know what they're doing. And, you know, Ruben's father is like, "Uh, this is really illegal, guys. You'll never be able to sell that. (laughs) But they didn't worry about that. They're kids, whatever. They spent about a year working on it. 
Then disaster struck because one of them ended up accidentally copying over their only floppy disk copy of their in-development game. Yeah, that's not good. Kids, if you're going to have a company, or heck, if you have files that you want to have and, you know, keep, I suggest the 321 backup program. <laughs> Three copies of any important file, two different types of media, one of them off-site. This podcast has that method for saving the audio files and project, and yes, it has saved me on occasion. Absolutely. And of course, this was a different time, 1984. Hard drives for personal computers were really not a thing. Certainly, off-site backups weren't a thing in terms of the web or network backups, but they could have maybe sprung for the extra floppy disk and uh, <laughs> kept a backup copy that way. You never know. It's like a fire. And I mean, the old way of doing the offsite thing is, hey, I take this one floppy disk and I go to grandma on the weekends and then I just swap out that floppy disk every week or so when I go visit grandma. Yeah. They also worked on a golf game for a while at one point that never went anywhere. The thing that they finally started working on pretty seriously is uh, Jason Rubin's family went away on a skiing trip and... He had a really good time on said skiing trip, so he decided to start working on a game on his own that he called Ski Stud, just a very simple skiing game. He got it up and running. He got it kind of working a little bit, but he couldn't get it animating very smoothly, scrolling very smoothly. It had problems, so he brought it to Andy. This was kind of at the point where Jason's programming ability was really starting to tap out. Andy took over working on it and really got it running well. This ended up being the product that they decided to make their first product that they would try to sell. It's actually very fascinating. It goes back to this idea of how brilliant Andy Gavin was and is as a programmer. Again, we're talking 83, 84, 85 this time period. All of this stuff is still very new. Everything's very primitive. There aren't tools. There aren't, there's not middleware. There aren't tools. And there aren't many even in the way of like graphics software programs. You know, there's, there's no deluxe paint. There's no MS paint. There are graphics tablets at this time. And for those of you who are not artistically inclined, when we're talking graphics tablet, we're not talking about you get out your iPad and draw on it. We're talking about actually a hunk of plastic that is a tablet that has uh, sensors in it and you have a little plastic pen or whatever kind of pen and, and you just trace out on this pad and it interfaces with your computer and it draws it on the screen. Not talking iPads. There were graphics tablets there was some primitive stuff, but there wasn't much there. So when they first started doing this, what they actually did is they would create their pixel art in the classic electronic arts Bill Budge pinball construction set. Because pinball construction set, which we've talked about before, it, it had a GUI interface, which was great and which nothing had back then. It allowed you to create your own pinball tables and, and your own parts and whatnot, so it allowed you to essentially kind of do pixel art in there. But of course, it didn't allow you to export that art, because Pinball Construction Set is not an art program. It is a pinball construction set. So the things you create in there aren't meant to exist outside of the framework of that game. 
But he figured out, and obviously I don't know all the technical ins and outs because I'm not technical. And even if I were technical, this is highly specific Apple II God-level programming nonsense. But they figured out that if they reset the computer at the right time, like when the program was still open and whatnot, the graphics would end up being cached, and then they would be able to get into the cache and extract the graphics out of there to then use in their other projects. That sounds like a very roundabout way of doing graphic design. But it's all they had. But then they did eventually find a sprite-creating program that was created by a small Michigan company called Baudville. BOD, B-A-U-D, is in the way we used to measure the speed of modems. They started using this program unofficially. I don't know that they pirated it. I'm not clear on that from the sources. They either pirated it or they were using it under a personal license when the company also had a commercial license. I don't know which. But they started using this program from Baudville to do their sprites. Once they decided that the Ski Stud game was going to be their first product, they realized that they should go ahead and and get a license, so they applied for a commercial license from the company. Now, their publishing plan, because remember, again, these are just kids. They are literally kids. At this point, they're 15. This is about 1985, you know, about a year or so after they founded Jam. Their publishing plan was to do what so many of the early hackerish computer game creators and publishers did. They were going to duplicate some discs, buy some Ziploc baggies, and just go around to the local DC area stores and see if any of them would take their game. That was the plan. But when Baudville saw what they were working on, these aren't guys that are any importance to the video game industry. I've never heard of them outside of this context. I don't have any background on them other than that they were in Michigan. It was just a small company with like two or three guys, and you know they made this sprite program. When Baudville saw the game, they offered to publish it for them. Gave them national distribution for a given value of national distribution, because this is a small company with not necessarily a lot of clout. Still, it's going to be better than them just walking around the D.C. area. Exactly, a lot better. So they left at that deal. They were paid, I think it said, $250 for the game, is what they got for it. The only real request that the company had is they wanted the name changed, Stud being a not very politically correct name, and so it was released not as Ski Stud, but instead as Ski Crazed. Very first game by Jam Software, which would later become Naughty Dog. If you look at the box art, they did get full credit on the box. There is a picture of a very young teenage Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin on the back of the box for this game. Apple II release. Ski Crazed sold about 1,500 units, and they were in the games business. Following up from that, they did do a second game for Bodville. Actually, they did two more games for Bodville, I should say. One of them was an educational title by the name of Math Jam. Jam obviously coming from their name, Jam Software. Its educational titles were a big deal back in those days we talked about before in like our Spinnaker Software episode and whatnot. Then they did a graphical adventure game by the name of Dream Zone, which was kind of, in a way, like mist before mist. I don't want to take that parallel too far, because it's really not mist. 
you're kind of trapped in a dream world and and you're going through this kind of warped reality and it's it's you know point and click it has a little bit of that mist feel to it though i don't want to make it sound like you know they discovered the winning mist formula you know before the <laughs> the miller brothers did it's 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 not that great but that's kind of the stuff they're doing the dream zone thing you got the interface there and it looked like they took actual pictures of like their bedrooms and stuff right. and put it in the video game because you got like the teenager suggestive lady poster on the wall. You got this house out of the 1980s, all in black and white. Absolutely. That one was actually uh, released on the Apple II GS, first of all things, which is not an Apple II. It has a completely different processor. It's just uh, considered part of the Apple II line by Apple. It was a short-lived attempt to migrate the Apple II brand into 16-bit, which didn't go very well. But it was released on that, as well as other Apple platforms. At this point, we're talking 1987. They've done three games. They've realized that they can do this thing. They realize they have a business. It's still just the two of them. They're still high school students. They're still working out of the basement, still working out of their parents' houses, you know, nothing formalized, no employees, nothing like that. But they're able to make a go of this, and they start dreaming bigger because it's very clear that Baudville is a very tiny company with very little clout and can't really get them the distribution, the marketing, the press, everything else that they need to really, really be successful. You know, these games, they sell a few thousand units. They make a little money on them, but there's not much going on. And so they decide they need to hit the big time. And at the time, there is no bigger big time in computer gaming than electronic arts. So they set their sights on becoming developers for electronic arts. We have to remember, we've done many EA episodes, and I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this regardless, but we have to remember that at this time, 1987... Electronic Arts is still the company that bills itself as the company by artists for artists. They don't do internal game development. In fact, 1987 is the year that their first internally developed game, Skate or Die, comes out. They don't do an internal game development. They have producers on staff that go out and find talent, provide them support, and publish their games. That's exactly the kind of treatment that our young friends Ruben and Gavin are looking for at this point. Of course, Electronic Arts is all the way over there in Silicon Valley, literally on the opposite side of the country, and they have no contacts. They don't attend trade shows. They don't go to Comdex or CES or any kind of show where companies hobnob and trade secrets. They're just a couple of teenagers in the D.C. suburbs. What they are able to find, though, is a phone number for the Electronic Arts customer service line. So they give the customer service line a call and somehow manage to talk their way into getting a producer on the phone. I don't know which one, but they got an Electronic Arts producer on the phone through the customer service line. They explained who they are, what they're doing. I don't know if they had to send them a demo. I don't know the details. But the point is, they were able to get the dialogue going. Electronic Arts recognized that these teenagers seem to have something. And so they signed them to an artist contract. The youngest artists working for Electronic Arts at this time. At this point, we're talking 1987, so they are 17 years old. Well, at least they have cars now. Yeah. I say they signed an artist contract, but I assume their parents had to sign the artist contract for them because they were under 18, which means they could not even legally enter into a contract. 
small technical difficulties, but I mean, consider one of them has a father who's in intellectual property and is versed in this kind of thing. And he's probably all gun ho about both of the boys going out and trying to build a business. And yep. it's probably providing the legal help with some of this stuff. That's very possible. Even though Ruben and Gavin have been interviewed a fair amount, no one's really asked about that kind of thing, to my knowledge. There's a job for you, Alex. There's a job for you. There's my job. That's got to be the question I ask them. They become Electronic Arts' youngest artists. You know, the last game that they did was this Dream Zone game, so they decide to follow up on that by creating another point-and-click adventure game for their first Electronic Arts product, which ends up going by the name Keef the Thief. It's kind of a comedic adventure game, which is something that Ruben and Gavin ended up being a bit disappointed with. They didn't set out to do a comedic game, but Electronic Arts kind of pushed them in that direction. I don't know exactly why, but just filling in some of the pieces, adventure games at this time started going in a more humorous direction. You had had the Space Quest and Leisure Suit Larry games at Sierra. Of course, you had Maniac Mansion come out in 1987 from Lucasfilm Games. So graphical adventures had kind of been morphing into something more humorous, more absurdist. I think probably for that reason, Electronic Arts pushed them into that direction. So it ended up being kind of a humorous game, which wasn't necessarily what they were going for. It was fine. It actually did pretty decently, all things considered. It sold 50,000 units, which in the context of 1989, when it was released, I mean, I think by the late 1980s, it's fair to say that a true hit was really more in the 100,000 range by that point. We've kind of talked about this a few times, especially in our 100,000 for 100,000, where we went through all the 100,000 sellers. 50,000 isn't really a big hit. But it's not bad in the context of that times, and of course, it's far better than anything else that Gavin and Ruben had sold. They definitely got some money out of that. So, you know, it was a good deal, even though they were a little bit disappointed that they were forced to take it into a direction they didn't want to. Because that went well for all parties involved, they are going to do a follow-up, a second game, not a sequel, but just another game for Electronic Arts. This time, they want to get back to those serious ideas that they had. They don't want to do another humorous game. They basically decide that they want to out Ultima Ultima. You know, not too ambitious, right? It has certainly led to some companies being able to do some interesting things trying to out Ultima Ultima. Yep. They decide they want to do an RPG. Isometric, turn-based RPG. Kind of in the Ultima vein, but starring a wizard, and there are lots of spells you can learn, and it's a big world. They just want it to be big. They want it to be this giant product. They ask for a whopping $90,000 to make this thing. That's a lot. (laughs) Where's all that money going? You know, just getting this project done. It's still just the two of them. Though at this point, it is no longer Jam Software, because in 1989, they have in fact renamed themselves Naughty Dog. I don't know where the name comes from. They haven't really talked about the name. However, Jason Rubin did have a dog that, as the company grows, follows them everywhere, that we'll talk about more later, by the name of Morgan, a Black Lab Ridgeback mix. I don't know if she's the origin of the name. I just don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny that they haven't really talked about that. 
But in 1989, they do rename Jam Software Naughty Dog. And so this Electronic Arts product is coming out under the name Naughty Dog. It's still just the two of them. There's no staff. There's not even other friends like helping them on the side. I mean, obviously, EA is assigning a producer to it on their end. But it's still just the two of them making all of these games. Andy's the main programmer. Jason's the main artist. They're just doing all this stuff themselves. So they're going to make this gigantic game under the name at this time, Buccaneer. It's the initial name for it. It's going to be their next PC game, computer game. I mean, not necessarily literally IBM PC, but it's going to be their next computer game for Electronic Arts. Then, on a fateful visit to the Electronic Arts offices, Andy Gavin notices, as they're walking through, that some of the Electronic Arts developers have these Weird Sega Genesis systems with cables sticking out of them attached to some kind of weird gray box. Gavin is so shocked that he just kind of blurts out, you're reverse engineering a Sega Genesis, aren't you? Not a direct quote, but I mean, he essentially says that. It wasn't very long after that that they found themselves in Trip Hawkins' office surrounded by the lawyers. Because yes, at this time, as we have talked about in our Electronic Arts episodes, Electronic Arts and Trip Hawkins have made the bold decision to move into the Sega Genesis market without the permission of Sega, because they don't want to be tied down by all those licensing restrictions that they can't stand. So they had undertaken their own very super top secret reverse engineering of the Sega Genesis, clean room reverse engineering, totally legal, so that they could enter that market. As we talk about in our Electronics Arts episodes, which isn't relevant really to the Naughty Dog story, they finally do come to terms with Sega and they get a special deal and and all of that. But this is the point where they're going rogue and reverse engineering. It's very secret, very hush-hush. And this brilliant programming kid just... Then why did they take the kids and walk them right past it? Because they didn't expect them to realize what was going on. They didn't expect that Andy Gavin would look over just in passing and see this thing and immediately know that that has to be a reverse-engineered Genesis dev kit. You would think that they would at least think, you know, these are the youngest game developers that we have signed. (laughs) They might be a little smarter than the average bear. Maybe, maybe. Yes, at that point, the non-disclosure agreements come out. (laughs) You will not be leaving this building until you sign the papers. So, of course, they are sworn to secrecy, but then they also pitch, well, you know, since you're getting on the Genesis, we could make our RPG for the Genesis. Electronic Arts was like, okay, we can do that. That is how Naughty Dog became a console developer. Just like that. Because they reverse-engineered Genesis dev kit on a walk through the Electronic Arts offices. Their RPG ends up being released as Rings of Power. This one is kind of a crazier, in a way, dev cycle, because by this time they are a little older. They're in college. They're in college in two different places. They did not go to college together. Ruben was attending school at the University of Michigan, and Gavin was attending school at a college in Pennsylvania. 
they were having to send their work back and forth over the commercial modems that were available at the time. No fancy networks, no fancy ARPANET access or something like that. They were transferring files back and forth using 300 baud, literally 300 baud modems when they started. By the time they were done, they had slightly better modems and they were transferring material back and forth at a whopping 2400 bauds. Good times. Dear God, is that slow. Yes, it is. During the summers, because it did take several years for them to do this product, because it's almost entirely just the two of them. Another programmer, somebody that Andy Gavin meets by the name of VJ Aponde, does join in the development as well to help with the programming, but it's still mostly the two of them. So it does take them several years. The budget balloons from 90000 to a whopping 150000 They are able to do some work together in the summers when they're home from college. But yeah, they just work on this thing remotely over the course of several years until it's finally done. Then it is released on the Genesis in 1991. Well, there was some good news and there was some bad news about Rings of Power. Let me guess, there might have been some conflict with some sort of Tolkien-ish estate? No, no, they were fine. They got the game out on that name. Nobody cared. Amazon wasn't making a television series yet. The good news is, it was a hit. The original print run was 100,000 copies, a modest print run, but it sold out its entire 100,000 copy print run. That's what people want out of a video game, yes? The bad news is that when it came time for reprints, since clearly the game was doing well, Electronic Arts had a choice of viewing. They could reprint Rings of Power, a role-playing game with lots of advanced graphics that took up a relatively large amount of memory, had a relatively large cart size, and also needed the ability to save your progress, and so it also had a saved game battery in order to store. Or they could reprint John Madden Football which is smaller memory size, no backup battery, and has also been doing rather well in stores recently. Well, I know I am not Madden for some football, so obviously they went with the true way, which is rings of power. I have this ring right here. You can't see this on the podcast, but Alex can on the camera. That's true. And it is a ring of power. Thus, by putting it on... My power grows, and thus history was changed. Well, Jeffrey, that's not how America works. Damn. There is no magic in America, only football. So yes, when it came time to do reprints, I mean, obviously they could have also done a mix. They could have ordered some of one or some of the other, but John Madden Football, we have a whole episode on it. On the Genesis is selling like hotcakes. This is the true establishment of the franchise, not the Apple II game that had been released previously. It's selling like mad. They want to put as much into that as they can. Plus, it has the added benefit of being a cheaper cartridge to produce because it uses less memory. Even though Rings of Power was a sellout at 100,000 units, Electronic Arts declined to manufacture any more copies. The print run was over. So, it seemed, was Naughty Dog. At this time, 1991, they were born in 1970, which is great. It makes it so easy to do the math. In 1991, they're 21 years old. 
They are close to graduating college. By the time sales are really getting going and reprint decisions are getting made, it's 1992. They're 22 years old. They're basically done with college. They're kind of burnt out on the difficulties they've faced, even though they've definitely made some money with Electronic Arts, Keith the Thief. Their artistic vision was somewhat compromised, went from a serious adventure game to a comedic game, not entirely with their blessing. Now Rings of Power, they put all of this effort into it over multiple years, telecommuting while still keeping up with their classes. To be honest, it's really impressive. Yeah, exactly. Have it be well-received and successful only to have their publisher yank the rug out from under them. A perfectly reasonable business decision by Electronic Arts, but that's no help when you're Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin and you've just seen your baby left to die, (laughs) you know. It's time to start figuring out what to do with the rest of their lives now that they're out of college or soon to be out of college. So they decide to walk away from game development. They're done. So that's the story of Naughty Dog, guys. Uh, I lied to you. It's not actually a two-parter because Naughty Dog was wound up in 1992 and never made another game again. We'll see you next time. In our next episode, we are going to be covering how the rampaging mob of fans murder (laughs) us. Ooh, that sounds like a fun topic. That's right. I mean, they have so much different ways that they can do so. They can just storm the gates. There's fire. Brimstone, who knows what, curses. I suppose this means we won't be getting any more money at our Patreon that people that like our podcast can send us money to, right? Probably not. Let me use that ring of power again to reset that, (laughs) all right? So, Naughty Dog came back somehow. Yes, so obviously this is not the end of the Naughty Dog story, but in 1992, it honestly did look like the end. I'm not lying about that. They decided to move on. Andy Gavin wanted to go on to graduate school. He was pursuing a PhD. He chose some little obscure university in Massachusetts. MIT, I think it's called. Massachusetts Institute of Technologistical Things? I don't know. Something like that. Like I said, Andy Gavin's a genius. So he goes to MIT to pursue his PhD. I mean, a master's first, but with the goal of moving on from a master's to the PhD program. He gets involved with a very prestigious artificial intelligence laboratory. He's just being a genius, being a genius. Meanwhile, Jason Rubin just wants to take a break. You know, they've made some good money on all of this video game stuff. He's out of college. You know, he got to know California a little bit because, of course, Electronic Arts is in California. So, you know, they travel there from time to time. So he just decides to move to California to take up surfing, literally just to take up surfing while he figures out what he wants to do with his life. That doesn't last very long. He figures out he does want to do things with his life, but he's still not going back into games. He gets very interested in kind of the early days of 3D computer graphics that are just starting up in this time. CGI, Silicon Graphics Workstations, Power Animator, you know, all this kind of new stuff going on in 3D computer graphics. And so he founds his own 3D computer graphics company to take on contract work like in Hollywood. I mean, he's not literally in Hollywood, but to take on contract work for films. Again, not video games. He actually gets himself a contract with Columbia Pictures. There's a movie that's in development at this time called Wolf. It's not in any way memorable. Nobody has heard of this today. I've never heard of this today, but it was a Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer vehicle. They were both big names. And it's about a guy who becomes a werewolf, essentially. He may just become a wolf. 
I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't care about the plot. But the point is, there's a transformation in this movie where the character is becoming a wolf and they're wanting to do this with CGI. Jason Rubin is actually able to get the contract for his new company to do this thing. So that's what it looks like it's going to be. It looks like Rubin's going to go into special effects. Gavin is going into serious academic research. And then uh, after that, you know, God knows what, after he gets his PhD. But then fate intervenes when they get a call out of the blue from one Mr. Trip Hawkins, whom we have encountered before. You mean the same guy who dragged him into the office because they were too smart, forced him to sign a contract, and then said, you know, that game that you made for me with that stuff that I made you sign a contract for, yeah, we don't care about that anymore, and we're not republishing it. Go away. That's right. Because Trip Hawkins does appreciate talent. Trip Hawkins certainly knew that Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin were very talented. Trip Hawkins, in 1993 when this is taking place, by this time has left Electronic Arts for his little console spinoff company, 3DO. We've talked about 3DO before a little bit. Someday we may do a whole episode on it, though I wish I had more information on some of the inner workings of the nonsense. But basically, Trip Hawkins, as a guy who was fed up with the console ecosystem, where you had to pay a lot of licensing fees, give up a lot of control, get a lot of permissions, put up with a lot of restrictions from console makers, wanted to unlock the console market by creating a universal standard, similar to how VHS had become a universal standard in VCRs, and create a console system that was manufactured and marketed by multiple companies, all based around the same standard, just like VCR, in which there were very low development fees and very little restriction put on the publishers on what they could do, and of course, also tying in to the whole multimedia revolution that we've talked about before that is supposed to be going on at this time, using CDs and all of this stuff. So he needed developers, smart, savvy developers, to work on the system. So he just calls them up out of the blue and offers them a 3DO dev kit, no strings attached. He's not asking them to come work for 3DO. He's not signing them to a contract to make a game for him. He's not creating any kind of financial or legal relationship between Naughty Dog and 3DO. Trip Hawkins, in this case, is playing the role of evangelist, which is a role he is very good at. He's basically saying, I'm making this new platform. It's going to be amazing. You guys were always really, really good at pushing the envelope technically on what you could do on the Genesis and all of this other stuff. So here is a dev unit. Have fun. Make a game. Don't make a game. See what you can do. So Naughty Dog was back in action. And this was actually very intriguing to them because they've always had ambitions. They've always wanted to make really, really big games. I mean, that was kind of the starting point for Rings of Power, right? Let's out Ultima Ultima. Let's do something like Ultima, but let's make it really, really big. Vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big. You may think that Ultima is big, but that's just peanuts to the kinds of games that Naughty Dog wants to make. Real bonus points if you get that reference, since uh, it is heavily paraphrased. So they were very frustrated by the limitations of cartridge. Cartridge is very limiting in the memory. 
the fact that they have been offered this opportunity to create on a CD-based system, which is unlocking just everything, because those things have like 650 megabytes of memory, Jeffrey. Only 650? Not only, Jeffrey, 650 exclamation point megabytes. More space than you could ever need to create a state-of-the-art video game. I have some things in my Steam list that would argue with that. (laughs) Yes, but of course, at the time, this was, you know, amazing. So this suckered them back in. They decided that Naughty Dog would live again and would get back into the video game business. Remember, they are literally on opposite sides of the country at this point, so they have to figure out what they're doing. Uh, Jason Rubin has really grown to like California. He tries to convince Andy to come out there and work together. But Andy has no intention at this point of giving up his MIT education. He's still working on his master's with the ultimate goal of pursuing a doctorate. He convinces Jason that, no, no, Jason needs to come to Boston, and they'll do this game together there. So that's what they do. Naughty Dog kind of officially, you could say, relocates to the Boston area so that Andy Gavin can continue pursuing his degree, and they get to work. Alex, it's the early 90s. They can at least get a 36.6 modem. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to do it this time. Not gonna do it this time. So they relocate, they share an apartment together. They don't have a lot of money at this point. They decide a couple of things. First of all, they have to figure out what genre they're going to be in. They are at this time inspired by the fighting game genre. Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Samurai Showdown are all very, very popular at this point in American arcades. Digitized graphics, as represented especially by Mortal Kombat, have become kind of the new hotness. And of course, doing digitized graphics, by which I mean filming real people in front of a blue screen or green screen, and then turning that footage into pixel graphics, literally digitizing them, has become all of the rage and really fits in with the multimedia aspect. They decided to basically take Mortal Kombat, digitized graphics, Tilt it a little more humorous. Mortal Kombat is very self-serious in its mythology and its blood and its fatalities and everything. By using kind of Hong Kong cinema, things like Jackie Chan as inspiration, this kind of new wave of Hong Kong cinema from the 1980s that had taken the serious martial arts that someone like Bruce Lee had done a decade before that and made it slightly more ridiculous, slightly more comedic. Marrying Mortal Kombat with kind of Hong Kong cinema to create an over-the-top comedic fighting game utilizing digitized graphics. This product, they end up giving the name Way of the Warrior. The graphics are very impressive. Yes. The 3DO was impressive for its time because, remember, I mean, the 3DO was obsoleted very quickly. We're talking 1993 here. We're talking before the PlayStation when they're starting to work on this game. This would arguably blow most PlayStation graphics out of the water. Well, I mean, it's a different kind of thing, right? Because it's still a 2D game, whereas the PlayStation is trying to do 3D. The PlayStation can do pretty amazing sprite-based graphics. You just don't see many games doing that because Sony was discouraging people from doing sprite-based games and two-dimensional games because they wanted people to do the whole 3D thing. They're working on this game in very kind of squalid circumstances. They do the filming in their little apartment. 
They covered up the windows. Space was so small, they had to open their front door and film from the hallway into their room. They created their own kind of primitive blue screen. Very janky. Not a very good screen at all. They had to spend hours and hours and hours of post-processing, eliminating the so-called halo effect around their characters. Seventh Guest is a really good example of this because in Seventh Guest, they also didn't use a very good screen and they eventually ended up saying, screw it, they're all ghosts now. If you look at like Seventh Guest, we can put that in the show notes. That gives you a good example of this halo effect that I'm talking about when you don't have a proper green screen or blue screen and you're not able to fully isolate the characters that you're filming because there's bleed from the background because your screen is poor. You get this kind of ghostly halo effect around a character of these kind of extra pixels that you then have to either laboriously remove pixel by pixel, frame by frame in editing software after you digitize your footage, or you just have to say, forget about it, it's just going to look terrible, or forget about it, they're all ghosts now. Green screen and blue screen is very, very fascinating. I actually do it myself sometimes. Like, if you ever watch our live streams, I actually am in front of a green screen. Mm -hmm. The challenge there is actually more lighting than the green screen itself. Mm -hmm. As long as the green screen or blue screen is a solid color, which pretty much just about anything will work, as long as it's just a solid color. The problem is, is that with lighting, is that you get shadows. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much just all shadows, because depending on where the light's coming from, how it hits off things, you have to make sure there's enough light on the background where the green screen or blue screen is in order to have that be lit consistently at a single color and luminosity compared to your subject who's in the front, who also has to be lit properly with a key light and some other things. The very basic setup is a three-point lighting system where you have a small key light on you and you have like two lights behind you that are illuminating the background in order to try and make that consistent. But a lot of times you need a lot more light. It gets fun. I've had my own halo effect on occasion. It's a nightmare. It can be a nightmare real quickly without some practice and a heck of a lot of lights that are very consistent or at least have the ability to, hey, I want this one to be a little bit brighter. I want this one to be a little bit dimmer so that you can get a good eye for what a consistent color is in the background. Yeah, they were doing this relatively on the cheap because, I mean, they're still just a couple of guys. That's what Naughty Dog is. They didn't have a chroma key system. The backdrop that they got was not a true motion capture backdrop. and actually. Now that I look further, it wasn't even blue screen. It was a cream-colored screen, so they didn't even have a properly colored screen. problem with a cream screen is that that's close to skin color. Exactly. The reason that we use blue screens or green screens is because in normal environments where we're doing this kind of thing, you don't really have that color. And like the reason they go away from blue screen is because people have blue eyes or something like that. Exactly. Humans have very little green, if any, in them. Exactly. Because in as, as Jeffrey said earlier, any solid color will do. But if you choose a solid color that is going to bleed in to what you're shooting, then you get into some trouble. So they had no way to get the color right in the shooting. They didn't have professional cameras and they were literally having to shoot from the hallway. Their neighbors thought they were shooting a porno. <laughs> They're like, what's going on here? You know, well, because nobody's heard about filming for a video game, you know. The actors were friends, schoolmates, that they would come in and have filming. 
the costumes they got from all sorts of places. There was a store in the Boston's Chinatown where they got a lot of costumes. One character who was playing an Indian character was actually an Indian actor. It was VJ again, who had helped with the programming of their previous Game Rings of Power a little bit. VJ's at MIT. He portrayed an Indian character whose costume was a pillowcase standing in for his loincloth, a sheet for his turban, and then a gem from a secondhand Jasmine dress-up kit for a child, the Princess Jasmine from Aladdin. This was the costume. This is the kind of budget they were working with. You say the graphics look good, and they do because they're good at programming and they spent the time to digitize, but just about the cheapest production you can imagine. There's voice acting in it as well, and they got friends and and whatnot to do the voice acting. The voices of one of the characters in this schlocky, cheap, over-the-top, ridiculous 3DO fighting game is Dr. Rodney Brooks, who at the time was the head of the AI lab at MIT, where Andy Gavin worked, so Andy Gavin knew him, who is one of the most distinguished minds in the field of robotics who has ever existed, voiced one of the characters in this video game Way of the Warrior. (laughs) It is weird the twist and turns video game history takes sometimes. Exactly. Another one of the characters was voiced by an individual by the name of David Liu, who had been the valedictorian of Harvard in 1994, but who was also a fanatic Street Fighter II player. So again, somebody else they knew and someone who was in the fighting game scene who's this like super genius, valedictorian of Harvard, voiced another one of the characters. They just pulled in anyone from their circle. And since Andy Gavin is a very smart programmer at MIT in the AI lab, his circle includes some pretty impressive people. So they did this thing. They got this game done. They blew through just about all the money they had. There were times where they had to turn the heat off. They were eating ramen. They were turning the heat off in their Boston apartment. Gets a little cold up in Boston. Not like turning the heat off in Hawaii. They're spending all of their money, but it's coming together. It really is coming together. I mean, the game is working. Once they have something kind of in pretty good shape, once it's basically playable, basically done, They decide now it's time to find a publisher, because remember, 3DO gave them the dev kit, but there was no relationship established at that time. They spend not literally their last $10,000, because they did have a little more money in the bank, but as it turned out, over the course of this time, their bank account essentially went to zero, so even though it wasn't their last $10,000 at the time, it was basically their last $10,000 for a booth at CES in 1994, a tiny booth at CES in 1994 so that they could show the game to publishers. CES, as we've talked about before, the Consumer Electronics Show, before E3, this was the trade show that the video game industry companies went to. It was a broader Consumer Electronics Show. There was everything from stereos to televisions to car alarms at this thing. Video games was one of the things there. So they got their booth, $10,000 showed their game, and they ended up with three suitors. One of these was, quite logically, 3DO itself, which was on the lookout for titles to promote its system. The second suitor was Crystal Dynamics. Crystal Dynamics, which still exists today, it was bought up by Eidos, which then became part of Square Enix, which was then sold off to the Embracer Group, but it still exists as a developer today. But Crystal Dynamics had actually been established 
to create games on the 3DO. It was established by Dave Morse, who was the longtime business partner of individuals Dave Needle and RJ Michael that came up with the 3DO. And so while they worked with Trip Hawkins to create the 3DO hardware, David Morse, who had partnered with them before, went and founded Crystal Dynamics to make software. So they were a 3DO-focused company, so they were very interested. Well, 3DO didn't offer really the best deal, so they weren't really interested in that. Crystal Dynamics was very interested, but there was actually a split at Crystal Dynamics amongst the executive staff between people who just wanted to release Way of the Warrior as it was, or if they wanted Naughty Dog to rework it into a port of Samurai Showdown because they had just gotten the rights to it on the 3DO. And they were like, oh, this is great. This can jumpstart the creation of a Samurai Showdown game. So basically, they were kind of getting close to accepting Crystal Dynamics, but when they were told that they would have to rework it into a Samurai Showdown game, that was a deal breaker. So they ended up going with neither one of those companies, but actually going with the third suitor, Universal Interactive Studios. Oh, wait, we're in the Sillywood era. (laughs) Yes, yes, we are. Because Universal Interactive Studios is going to play a major role in the next phase of Naughty Dog's development, we really do need to take a second here to stop and talk very briefly about Universal Interactive Studios. It's as you said, this is very much the Sillywood era. So this is the period of time when movie studios, due to this whole multimedia thing, are thinking that we're coming to a point of merger between the way stories are told in film and the way video games are made and played, and that these companies need to get into this space, put together interactive divisions, exploit their intellectual property, etc. That is all going on, and that's a part of what the story is here. Universal Interactive Studios is different for two very important reasons from a lot of the other companies getting involved here. One of those is that at this point in time, MCA Universal is actually owned by Matsushita, the Japanese electronics conglomerate. Matsushita has signed on to be one of the principal, ends up being the principal, hardware manufacturers of the 3DO. Matsushita has been very interested in this whole creating a new standard thing for a long time. Matsushita is the one that created the VCR standard, and they had worked closely with Sony and Philips on CDI, the failed multimedia system. Now they've become a very strong and enthusiastic partner with Trip Hawkins on 3DO. Since their parent company, Matsushita, is involved with 3DO, it's no surprise that Universal Interactive Studios would be particularly interested in 3DO product, hence why they're interested in Way of the Warrior. The other thing that makes them different, though, is unlike all of the other Sillywood organizations that are developing in this time period, the person at Universal spearheading the creation of an interactive division is a true video game veteran. Atari's former general counsel and briefly coin-operated division president, Skip Paul. We've talked about Skip Paul before because we've talked about Atari's legal stuff before, and his general counsel, Skip Paul, was right at the heart of many of the legal things going on. Well, after the Atari adventure ended, he, he rode that roller coaster almost all the way to the end. He got really friendly with Steve Ross, head of Warner Communications, Atari's parent. Through Steve Ross became introduced to the wider entertainment industry world beyond the video game industry. 
He ended up being hired by the management duo of MCA Universal, the longtime duo, the last Hollywood moguls in a way, in, in the traditional sense, Sid Sheinberg and Lou Wasserman, to be the executive vice president and essentially the number three guy at MCA Universal. In that capacity, he was actually the primary negotiator in the Matsushita Purchase. Even after that purchase, he stayed on as basically the number three guy at MCA Universal. He took a slightly different approach to creating an interactive division than all of these other companies did. Universal was not just in the business of trying to exploit their properties. They weren't just like, oh, let's put some Hollywood people on a game based on this movie and let's release it on CD-ROM and it'll be great and everyone's happy. That was not their plan. They do a little bit of that, but their real plan is to find talent that already exists out in the video game industry. Let that talent do its thing and then do standard development contracts with kind of the lesser companies, but identify some truly outstanding teams that they can then offer development deals similar to the types of development deals that are done from time to time in the movie business. So this isn't a deal like a publisher arrangement in the video game industry where independent company makes a game, independent company takes game to publisher, publisher says, we like your game, we will publish it, we will market it, you will get a royalty. That's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about a standard contracting deal where publisher is like, I, publisher, have idea for a game I want to make. I am going to make a deal with you, developer, to make this game I want to make. Then we will publish this game that I want to make. They actually want to look for companies they can do a deal with that's basically, you people are very talented. So we're going to sign you to a general development deal where you are going to make us X number of games under this development deal. But we don't own you. We're not buying you. And we're not doing a typical milestone thing. What we're going to do is we're going to set you up on the lot. What happens like Steven Spielberg went with Amblin Entertainment. And, you know, the, I think this is the kind of deal it's modeled on. He had a deal with Universal Studios with Amblin Entertainment, you know, before he did DreamWorks, where Amblin had space on the Universal lot and they let him maintain an office there and they let him do this and that. And in return, he gave them some of his projects, but he didn't even give them all of his projects. He occasionally did movies with other people. You know, it's kind of this thing. It's like, we're going to nurture your talent. We're going to support you. We're going to give you money. We're going to give you space. In return, you're going to give us a set amount of games during this time period that we're going to publish. But we're not making a contractual deal for a specific game. It's not specific milestones. And we're not going to own you. It's just here. Have fun. This is not something anyone else was doing, and it was taking this movie studio model, but I think probably tempered by, and I don't know this for sure, but tempered by Skip Paul's understanding of the video game business and knowing that they needed to cultivate specific talent in that field. Skip Paul lived through E.T. Skip Paul was the legal guy at Atari during E.T. If there was anyone in the Hollywood system that knew that you don't just find a license, get a license, and slap that license on any old video game to run a video game business, it's going to be Skip Paul, right? So Universal had a very different approach. And the other thing is, Skip Paul, like I said, also, since he was at Atari, he knew video game people. Skip Paul's not running Universal Interactive Studios himself. 
he's setting it up, but he's the executive vice president of the whole studio. He has other things to do. But he also makes sure to put really important key veteran people in leadership positions within Universal Interactive. The president of Universal Interactive is an entertainment lawyer by the name of Rob Benias. He doesn't have any video game experience, but as a high-powered entertainment lawyer, he's very savvy on the idea of how you handle talent, how you work out development deals with talent, how you smooth over that whole legal and business side of things. But as his main video game expert, his executive producer, his technical guy, Skip Paul brings in Mark Cerny, whom we have talked about several times before, most recently, if you're listening to our episodes in order, in our Sega Technical Institute episode. Mark Cerny, programming genius, video game hardware genius, game designer of Marvel Madness and a few other products, has kind of been flitting back and forth between working for the man and being an independent contractor. Of course, he's no longer at STI because he got into it with Yuji Naka and ended up leaving after Sonic 2. We talk about that whole thing in that episode. Not long after that, Skip Paul scoops him up to work at Universal Interactive Studios. So there's a really competent management team in place that really understands that you need to find and nurture video game talent and let them make video games, rather than take people who are used to making movies and have them make a video game on a licensed property. So Universal isn't just looking at Way of the Warrior and saying, yes, let's do Way of the Warrior. They also said, we're also, in addition to publishing this game, going to offer you a development deal. We're not going to tell you what platform you have to publish on. We're not going to tell you that you have to use a specific IP. You want to use one of our properties, you know, use one of our properties, but you don't have to use a universal IP. Make the IP anything you want. Make any genre of game you want. We don't care. You get complete freedom to do whatever you want. At the end of the day, we're the ones that are going to be publishing it, and we will fund you. We are going to give you space on the Universal lot. We're going to give you offices. We're going to give you money to hire a real staff. Because remember, it's just the two of them with some occasional help and assists from friends. But those other people that worked on Rings of Power and especially Way of the Warrior, which did need a few more staff because it was a big project, none of them were Naughty Dog employees. They were just friends helping out as contractors. You're going to be able to hire a staff. You're going to get state-of-the-art silicon graphics workstations. You're going to get an office on the lot. You're going to get everything you need to make whatever you want. Dream project. So they said yes. Way of the Warriors published in 1994 by Universal Interactive Studios. It actually does pretty decently, considering the 3DO is a failure. It was one of the few real games in kind of the first wave. So many people were focusing on multimedia this, multimedia that. Whereas this, even though it had digitized graphics and everything, was kind of an old-school 2D fighting game. It did okay, but, you know, I mean, it's forgettable. I mean, it's nothing to write home about today, but it established that relationship with Universal. At this point, finally, they are fully 100% beyond any shadow of a doubt back in video games. This is also the end of MIT for Andy. They've been offered space on the Universal lot. They are going to Hollywood. No more crappy apartment with no heat. No more part-time while doing MIT and everything else. Naughty Dog is going professional in Hollywood. Where they can actually use a green screen or a blue screen. 
They pack up all of their possessions in a car and a following truck. I don't know who's driving the truck, but the two of them are in this old beat-up car together with uh, Jason's dog, Morgan, just the three of them, driving across pretty much the entire country from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Los Angeles, California. You're looking at something like a 42 hours, something like that, just straight driving. Yeah, it's almost as far as you can go because it's from the almost extreme northeast to the almost extreme southwest. They have a lot of time to think. So on this trip, they're naturally thinking about what's next. They've been offered their dream product. They start to think. And by this time, 94, 95, somewhere in there, 3D has been taking over the arcades, polygonal graphics. Yeah, the driving games get really 3D with Ridge Racer and Daytona. I'm not saying they were the first ones, but this is when it was really starting to pick up steam, you know, much better than, say, Hard Driving from Atari a few years before that. The fighting games are just barely starting to go that direction. Virtua Fighter, while a massive success in Japan, was not a huge success in the United States, but it was still a harbinger of what was coming, and it was very clear that that was also going to be the future of fighting games. There was clearly another incredibly popular console genre that, at this point in time, had yet to make the jump, and that was, of course, the character action game. Platformer, platform shooter, doesn't matter what. Just any game where you have a character and they're jumping, shooting, fighting through levels. Your Marios, your Sonics, your Mega Mans, your Castlevanias. This was clearly a genre that had not entered 3D yet, not really, but was clearly going to. On this cross-country trip, they kind of started to figure out the parameters of what that would look like. Remember, this had never been done before. Sega's first attempt at this, Knights, is still in the future. Nintendo's first attempt at this, Mario 64, is still in the future. These games haven't been shown. There's no roadmap for how to do this. How do you do the camera? How do you handle the controls? How do you present the interface in a way that makes it so that it's a fun, engaging experience, but you still have an idea of what the heck is going on? Exactly. They're particularly inspired by Donkey Kong Country. That's the latest and greatest in side-scrolling action games at this period of time. They're particularly inspired by what something like that might look like in 3D. They're trying to figure out kind of how to do this technically, because it's not just, okay, you know, yeah, you can have a 3D world, whatever. It's like, how do you keep this manageable? Because these character action games, like Mario, like Donkey Kong, they're side-scrolling, and they're based on the idea that you're able to very easily gauge the distance between jumps. You know, move along and jump and figure out exactly where to start your jump and, and where to land. Once you introduce the Z-axis, once it's a full 3D environment, it is very, very hard sometimes to have that sense of perspective of where you are in the world in relation to something else in the world, because these 3D worlds, even though they have a Z-axis, it's not like they're true 3D. It's not like there's depth perception. Like, we can gauge stuff out in the real world as humans because we have depth perception. <laughs> or at least we do when our vision systems don't betray us. <laughs> Jeff's giving me a knowing look here. It's like, depth perception, really? That's a thing we have, is it? <laughs> but... In a 3D video game space that is still technically on a 2D plane, 
with just a z-axis it's giving a fake perception of 3d space it can be very hard to figure out where you are in that world they decided their solution to that was that they really had to keep it on two axes even though we have the z-axis that doesn't mean we should keep both the x and the y-axis too so they came up with the idea that they would heavily limit movement on the x-axis narrowly confine the character on the x-axis and have them running into the screen and making the z-axis the primary connection point for the player, situated behind the character, moving into the screen. They jokingly called this, by the end of the trip, they had their very, very basic idea for what at that time they called the Sonic's Ass Game. Basically, the thinking is, well, if you have a character and you're always running into the screen, you're going to see their back a lot. So they kind of cheekily called it the Sonic's Ass Game. They arrive in Hollywood with a basic idea of what they want to do. They start staffing up. Their very first employee actually comes with them from Boston, from MIT, a friend of Andy's there that worked in the artificial intelligence laboratory with him. Possibly driving the truck. Yeah, I'm not sure if he moved with them or not. He definitely came out with them at some point, and his name was Dave Baggett. It's probably Baggett and not Baguette. It's B-A-G-G-E-T-T. Dave Baggett. They find a local artist by the name of Bob Raffae, Persian descent, Iranian descent, I believe. Then they find a 3D artist by the name of Taylor Kurosaki, who was actually working at Universal on television shows on the back lot. He was working on the television show Sequest, DSV, a short-lived show starring Rob Schneider and a CG dolphin submarine. But you see, because it was television, they were working with really primitive stuff. He was using Lightwave on a Commodore Amiga to do the computer-generated effects on that. He was really interested in what was going on with Alias Wavefront on Silicon Graphics workstations, the kind of stuff that was being used on Jurassic Park, but as a lowly television guy... He didn't have access to that kind of thing. He started seeing the Naughty Dog people started hanging around them and saw that they were using the Silicon Graphics workstations and getting to do all of this stuff. He ended up joining them because it would allow him to work with this fancier stuff. So a small team is starting to develop. I think in the end, only eight people work on the original Crash Bandicoot. They've kind of got some ideas. They decide that they want to do kind of a Warner Brothers-esque cartoon character as their main protagonist. They actually hire a couple of animators by the name of Charles Zambillis and Joe Pearson, who had worked on stuff for Warner Brothers, I think, and Hanna-Barbera and Don Booth Productions. Like, they had been in the traditional animation business. These two developed the look of the character. They had decided they were going to do an animal character, and they had hit upon this book of Australian animals and decided from that that they were going to do a wombat. That's what it was originally. They were going to create a character named Willy Wombat. They hired these two independent artists to develop the overall look and feel of the character and some of the backstory and whatnot for the character. Jason and Andy also decided on the villain of the piece. They had been really watching Pinky and the Brain cartoons, and they were referencing 80s pop culture a lot as they were putting this together, adventure films and action films and whatnot. 
They kind of came up with this idea that they wanted this genius character with a big head, a little like the brain. They wanted to have henchmen that were kind of like the weasels and Roger Rabbit. And I'm sure there was probably some sonic robotnik influence in there as well. So they decided on Dr. Neocortex, who, you know, became the villain of the piece of the Crash Bandicoot games. They decided they wanted to set it in the jungle. I have to imagine their Donkey Kong Country love had something to do with part of that. They were also said they were kind of referencing the idea that these mad scientists often tend to have these lairs on these tropical islands. That's kind of a trope. They're kind of getting this all together. Then Zimbillis and Pearson flesh things out a little more as independent contractors. They get all of this together. When it comes to the target platform, 3DO's on the way out. They definitely don't want to do that. Somewhere in there, they get wind, of course, that this PlayStation is coming. They figure that's their opportunity because Nintendo already has Mario. Sega already has Sonic. Sony is brand new. Sony doesn't have a mascot platform game. So they figure that they can probably become that mascot platform game. So even though Universal is their publisher, they still somewhere in here get the ambition that they're going to pitch Sony directly and say, we can be your mascot platforming game. We can be your competition to Mario and Sonic. They decide to fully focus on the PlayStation. They're actually able to get dev kits pretty easy from Sony. It's weird. They're not a publisher. So if you're a publisher, you have to jump through a lot of hoops oftentimes to get dev kits from a console company, especially a new console company like this that's being very careful. But sometimes what they'll do and what Sony was doing at these time is if you're an independent developer, they'll make it a lot easier for you to get a dev kit because they're just curious to see what you might come up with. They're not worried about you turning around and publishing something that they don't like or whatever because you're a small operation and you're not a publisher. So it can actually be easier as an independent developer. So even though Universal is funding them and even though they're on the Universal lot, they're not owned by Universal. They're still technically their own independent developer. They actually find it very easy to get some dev kits from Sony so they can start working on the PlayStation. These guys are truly brilliant. Again, Gavin is such a brilliant programmer. As Crash Bandicoot starts developing, they start to make a game unlike anything that had been seen to this point on the PlayStation. If you go back and look at PlayStation games circa 1994 to 1996, 96 being the year the Crash launched, if you look at some of the other games that come out during that time, Crash looks so much better than so many of the games coming out at that time. There's a couple of reasons for that. Well, first of all, it all comes down to polygon count. Crash has a relatively high polygon count for that time as a character between 500 and 600 polygons. The backgrounds have a relatively high number of polygons compared to other games at the time. The game just moves smoother and animates smoother and moves better than other PlayStation games at the time. They were able to do this using three primary tricks. First of all, they realized that even though the memory on the PlayStation was very small, the PlayStation only had two megabytes of video memory. 
This is part of the reason why it was such a struggle to get good 3D graphics on a PlayStation and why most PlayStation games tended to be kind of faux 3D games where you might have your main characters and objects as polygons, but you actually have pre-rendered backgrounds. I'm thinking about something like Resident Evil or Final Fantasy VII, where your characters are these fully formed polygonal characters, even if the Final Fantasy ones look like uh, Lego blocks, but your backgrounds are pre-rendered 3D images. They're not being drawn in real time by the engine, and it's because of this choke point of two megabytes of video memory. What the team at Naughty Dog and what Gavin realized is that even though the system has very little memory, we have a CD here. The CD has lots of memory. We just have to access that memory. Now, obviously, accessing the CD-ROM is slow. They figured out a way to access the memory in blocks on the CD so that they were constantly chunking in new sets of graphical data from the CD to the system in order to have more diverse graphics and higher polygon count graphics than you would normally expect. They were accessing the CD hundreds of times. If you play Crash Bandicoot on an original PlayStation and you just get up to that thing and listen to it, you will hear that CD-ROM buzzing like crazy because they're constantly accessing the disc instead of doing what most games do and load an entire level or load a section of a level and just load that and then wait till you move to the next room to load the next section. I think of Resident Evil again, where you're moving through the mansion and the reason you have that small graphic where you're opening that door is because the game is frantically trying to load the next room. Instead of loading a chunk taking a lot of time up front to load that chunk, letting you play that chunk, and then making you wait again for a long period of time while it loads the next chunk, during the course of a crash level, they are constantly accessing that CD drive over and over again, hundreds of times, in order to give you a smooth experience but with more detailed backgrounds than you could otherwise have based on limitations of the system. So that was thing number one. Thing number two is, okay, that's great, But that's also insane. How do you keep that manageable? Because you're still, you're trying to load mostly in real time, and there are so many objects on the screen, and how do you keep track of this, and how do you keep it going? Well, they were very clever. They did something very similar to what John Carmack did with Doom, except in some ways even more refined. So the thing that made Doom possible, right, we've talked about this before, is that those levels flew by because instead of rendering everything around you in this 3D environment, it's a faux 3D environment, but for our purposes, a 3D environment, he was doing ray tracing and he was only rendering what you could see on the screen. It's like nothing existed unless you were looking at it. No object permanence. So this was a similar idea. Now, it's not ray tracing because they're doing polygons, but it's the same basic idea. If there is a tree in medium distance, and there is a rock in far distance. These are all kind of jungle-type levels, so these are the kind of assets we're looking at. If that rock is covered by that tree in your current view, then the game is not drawing that rock. The game is only drawing the rock, only putting those polygons on the screen when the tree is out of the way and you can see the rock. So it's not just that they're only drawing what's in your field of view, they're getting very specific as to the order of objects and making sure to only draw objects that are literally on the screen at that exact moment. How did they do that? Well, first of all, we have to remember that they made the very clever for them decision to keep this on a very restricted x-axis. The levels are, for the most part, linear. 
they know when you're going to hit certain parts of the game. You don't have a camera that you're adjusting. You're not looking all around. They know when your character is going to be able to see something because you're not on rails. You control your own pace of movement, but you're on a set path. So what they did on their Silicon Graphics workstations, which have more power, they did these very intricate timing runs to pinpoint exactly when every last object in a level would become visible. Then they were able to adapt that, and when they adapted it down to the PlayStation hardware, they were basically able to have the system recognize exactly, you know, down to the, I don't know what the level of detail is, but, you know, down to the second, down to the microsecond, down to the whatever, know exactly when something had to be drawn. So nothing would ever be drawn before its time. That's pretty intricate and pretty clever, and not something that other companies were doing, you know? That involved having a much better understanding of how computers work, a much better understanding of how graphics work, and then able to apply that in a way that is efficient and programmatically possible. Mm -hmm. This was truly high-level impressive stuff. Then the other thing that they did is they just broke all the rules that Sony gave them. Rules. Peh. The PlayStation was one of the first consoles that was really developed around the idea of pushing polygons instead of sprites. Yeah, it doesn't do full 3D well, it's slow, it has too little video memory, blah, blah, blah. There are choke points in the bus. There's a lot of things there, but putting all of that aside, still, its primary point was to push polygons. Sony's primary goal was to get companies to push polygons. They did not want companies doing sprite-based games, even though the PlayStation could handle them. There was a conscious decision to move the industry forward. This stuff can be really hard to deal with. Making that jump from doing 2D game development to 3D game development is a huge jump. It's a completely different skill set. If you're a 2D artist, just even a regular, not a computer programmer, just a regular 2D artist, you can churn out sprite stuff all day long just by being a good artist. You may need somebody else to code that art into the computer, but just in terms of making the art, you can do that all day long. And if somebody spends an hour showing you how a pixel program works, like Deluxe Paint, then you, the artist, are pretty soon just doing your own pixel work, too. You know, animation, it's very similar. If you're a traditional animator, it's not too much of a stretch to do 2D animation, sprite-based animation. Making 3D models is a completely different skill set. What you know about drawing something on a page or drawing something on a sprite editor does not translate into 3D. Yeah, if you're an artist, you have an idea already of how perspective works and stuff like that. But in terms of creating your polygons, it does not translate. So this is a new skill set. This is a new difficult thing to do. You're balancing the load on multiple processors in a way that you're often not used to in, in video game development. There's a lot of stuff that's hard. And so Sony, as part of making sure that they would get developer buy-in and would get a broad base of support and also games that were reasonably competent and did a reasonably good job of taking advantage of the PlayStation hardware, created a set of application program interfaces, APIs, to handle most of the work of creating a game. They created a very robust library of APIs to do most of the work. So you were supposed to, and when I say supposed to, they would threaten people with being banned from working on the platform if they didn't. So we're not just saying supposed to like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? No, this is supposed to like, this is what you're doing. They forced people to create games using that library. Well, it's an application programming interface, which means that it's, it's a layer of software between your game program and the machine that has to be interpreted. It's not machine language. It's not assembly language. 
So you're writing games in C on the PlayStation. That's all fine and good. I mean, that's what everybody does today. But the PlayStation was still a primitive enough console at that point that you did lose a lot of capability and a lot of speed because you were having to do the interpreting. That's why on all of the early video game systems, things were basically always written in assembly language. Because even when you had a nice, robust, high-level language like C, those systems, because of their processing power, were just too slow and you lost too much by working through the high-level language. So you always programmed to the metal. The PlayStation was powerful enough that you could make something good in C, in a high-level language. But it wasn't so powerful that there wasn't some trade-off in doing so. They were having real problems animating this thing fluidly because they're doing this really high polygon main character. They're doing these really detailed backgrounds with lots of objects, and they're just running into issues pumping this whole thing through. So Andy Gavin does what any sensible programmer would do. He just bypassed the API library and started writing an assembly on the PlayStation, which he's not supposed to do. That allowed them to use over 95% of the graphical capability of the system because the graphical performance was locked a little bit behind the APIs. And I think over time as the system, I'm not positive about this, but I think over time as the system became more mature, Sony modified the APIs and made them able to take advantage of more and more. But this is very early days. So a lot of the power of the graphical processing unit could not be harnessed by the APIs. But by bypassing it, they were able to use over 95% of the power of that graphics chip, which nobody else was able to do because it was literally impossible to do if you followed the rules. They've got all of this great stuff working together. They've got this high polygon count main character. They've got pretty smooth animation. They've got these gorgeous backgrounds. There's just one problem. The game is not fun. Kind of big problem. How was it not fun? You said you wanted a platformer where you run around and you bounce on things, maybe shoot some stuff, and uh, yeah. So here's the problem. It's great that these are programming geniuses. It's great that they were able to get a high polygon count main character. It's great that they were able to get these lush levels with high polygon backgrounds and lots of detail. However, they are still only human. And a PlayStation, even an unlocked PlayStation where you're programming directly to the metal, is still only a PlayStation. Which means that they spent most of their polygon count and most of their graphical processing power on the main character and the backgrounds. Which meant that they had very few other objects in the game. There were very few enemies. The enemies were spread very far apart. They tended to be smaller, more compact enemies like turtles because that meant that there were fewer parts of them that needed to be animated, fewer polygons for things like legs and whatnot. So they had these gorgeous worlds with almost nothing in them. So the game wasn't fun. There's a lot of games that fall into that trap today Mm -hmm. where you make a really expansive, beautiful, open world, whatever. Okay, I just spent three hours walking across the thing and I saw... Exactly. Oh, look, a deer. Um, yeah. Something clearly had to be done. They had to go back to the drawing board. They finally, not sure exactly which one of them came up with it, but they finally came up with the idea of crates. Again, no doubt, partially drawing from, like, say, Donkey Kong Country with its barrels, though I don't know that for certain. Crates are big boxes. Very few polygons. You don't have to get super intricate with the textures. Crates. 
we can put stacks of crates around that you're required to break. Then we can make little puzzles out of them. We can create varieties of crates. We can make crates that blow up. We can make crates that bounce. We can make crates that do random things. We can do crates where you have to break certain types of crates before you can break other crates to advance through the crates. Crates may not seem like the most exciting thing in the world on the face of it, but boy, do they have a cheap polygon count. So that is what solidified the gameplay of Crash Bandicoot around the breaking of crates and the collecting of things around crates. It allowed them to have nonstop interesting action without the polygon and processing load that would come by putting more enemies into the stages. This calls back all the way back to that time when they went to do boxing and they wanted to make a boxing game. So now they just have (laughs) their boxer punching crates in order to continue. It's a great boxing day. We're boxing around, punching this box, boxing that box. I know I was going somewhere with this. You can now just, I'll just show myself out. You're fine, mostly. We have our gameplay. We have our character who has, uh, by this point, morphed from Willy the Wombat into this character named Crash Bandicoot. We have something that's pretty fun, and we have what we believe is an opportunity to make an inroad with the big new console publisher on the block and become their answer to Mario and Sonic. While being heretical and going against their rules. Right. Naughty Dog has gone from two guys working in their parents' basement as teenagers on a skiing game for a nothing publisher in the Midwest to a studio of 8 to 12 people on a lot at a major motion picture studio in Hollywood with an opportunity to capture the attention of one of the biggest names in video games on the planet. In our next episode, we will pick up the story there, show how this relationship grew between Sony and Naughty Dog, and how that ultimately led to their being purchased and their creating even more elaborate, detailed, intricate worlds and stories on subsequent versions of PlayStation hardware. Well, I guess we're going to have to find out some more things the Naughty Dog did next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, they Create World, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. It really helps us out. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. I'm recording this at 12.12 a.m. April 14th, 2023. I'm tired. There's so much more to do still. But hey, you're listening to this on time.